Well, here as we go on this journey for the Restoring Darkness podcast, um, we always want to keep questioning things because I feel like there's we still have a lot to learn. And when you're questioning things, you want to bring on Natalie Rizzo, uh, the founder of Foscope, a think tank on light. She's based in New York, and she calls herself a phototech, which we unpacked on episode 324 of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. So if you're in this orbit and you're more on the lighting side than the environmental side of this podcast, you may want to go to the getagriponlighting.com website, and you want to look for episode number 324. Um, she's the recipient of many prestigious awards, grants, fellowships, and sponsorships, including the 2021 WIL Award for the Global Solar Lighting Initiative, the LightReach. That can be found at lightreach.net. She has a strong track record of contributions to social and critical issues in lighting and to lighting and design education. These include keynote presentations, speaking engagements, and publications as well as a part-time professorship at the New School. Former engagements as Senior Thesis Faculty in Lighting Design Master's Program, Senior Guest Lecturer in Landscape Architecture, Master's Programs in Versailles and Lille, and Education Columnist for the IES's publication, LDNA. Before we get to our conversation with Natalie, I want to quickly tell you guys about the Lighting in Darkness Foundation, created by over 75 lighting companies, distributors, and manufacturers. Um, we have a couple different purposes. One is to mitigate and help people that are in light trespass disputes, help them solve those problems, including redesigning the systems for them uh, for free. So yes, we, we, we do residential to residential, commercial to residential, municipal to residential, all manner. So if you know someone that has a light trespass issue, you can contact the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. We also create educational programs and we create awareness. We support the restoringdarkness.com website and the podcast that we produce to get this message, not to the end users, to the lighting industry and other environmentalists. Why? Because the lighting industry needs to accept that light pollution and light trespass are actually environmental issues and we can fix them. And we need environmentalists to embrace light pollution and darkness restoration and night preservation as a legitimate environmental issue. And so this is aimed at the midstream. It's not aimed at the end user. So if you want to support this work, you can go to restoringdarkness.com and click the donate link and you can donate to our foundation. You can also donate your time because we're looking for someone to help us redevelop that website. So if you're a web developer and you have a vision and we need someone with a real vision, you can help us out by volunteering and there's a ton of different ways. So go to restoringdarkness.com. And of course, I'm going to mention soft lights, Scott, even though he's not here. Mark Baker, he didn't make it on the show today. He might come in halfway, uh, but he works at, he's the executive director of our president of the Soft Lights Foundation. You go to softlights.org for all the great work that Mark is doing. Natalie, welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Hi, Michael. Happy to be here. Good to see you again. Likewise. So we, we discussed, when we were talking on, on Lighting and Darks, we talked about changing the words we use to describe um, various, uh, I'm not going to say issues necessarily, but various parts of the lighting industry. And you, you had come up with the term phototech rather than lighting designer, which we, we really loved. Now, I'm often in this movement, um, and while I love the work that Dark Sky does, Dark Sky in turn, um, darksky.org, I don't like the word dark sky. And our board of directors also doesn't like that term to describe this. We prefer darkness restoration and night preservation because 
we feel like it translates better into other languages. And also, it describes and is more of a call to action. How do you feel about the words that we use around this issue of light pollution and light pollution mitigation, light trespass? How do you feel about those words and what would you change? Well, I'm glad you asked because I, I agree with you. I think dark sky is misleading. It sort of suggests that the skies uh, should be dark. I think the mission of or you, your mission of restoring, you know, darkness or uh, natural sky preservation is really to preserve natural skies. Um, so it means to increase the visibility of um, celestial objects uh, such as stars and galaxies. Um, and this is where I'm going to start being critical, teasing you. Uh, so those, those are the good ones, uh, but also satellites. And from mm. what I understand or have heard, those are the bad ones. Mm. Um, I think if I'm going to go um, to Foscope's vocabulary, I can, I'm happy to work on a word, uh, but one that comes to mind is um, to increase hyperfertile environments where possible hyperfertile meanings uh, meaning you know low light levels um, a photo will be would be without any light uh, but hyperfertile you know below the norm mm. and and i think it's a it's a very legitimate quest to want to reduce light where it's not needed um, for our own comfort for the um, and for you know minimizing whatever impact lights may have on natural ecosystems so you use the word a photo and hyper photo um, and I'm going to tease you back here a little bit before you get to tease me um, is there a need in this terminology to distinguish between electric light and natural light? And when I say natural light, I don't just mean the sun. I mean the moon, the stars, bioluminescence, and these other kinds of lights. Do we have to be more specific when, uh, more than photo? I personally don't think so. Um, but I do have, I think we have uh, electrophotomorphing as a verb meaning to um, create you know to change space with electrical light mm -hmm. uh, because artificial light is typically electrical um, we are pretty far from uh, bioluminescence being able to bring usable light levels so <laughs> i'll skip i've skipped that one mm -hmm. uh, but i yeah that's an interesting uh angle i'm happy to um pay a little thought to it yeah i think it, I, I i i don't think we 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 give the other half of the cycle of light and darkness we don't give the darkness half enough of our language like it's always mystical or fearful based the way we describe darkness we don't actually describe it technically that much like there isn't that we don't describe different kinds of darkness most people don't know that 
that there are different kinds of light levels in the evening based on the moon cycle and the clearness of the sky and these different things. But there's actually enormous differences between a moonlit sky and a sky with no moon. Enormous differences between the two. We just don't have any words to describe it, really, or that, that are used by people. Um, yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, we are, you're talking about scotopic vision. Um it's uh, it's true that we put all those you know light levels in one umbrella, but then it's not uh, you know there's a dynamic there's a dynamic dimension of adaptation as well, mm-hmm. um, as you know. So I think yeah maybe we could be more precise in the the words that that we use. Yeah, I think that precision leads to is really the starting place for solid execution at the end of the value chain. You know what I'm saying? Where we're we're describing what we want to do correctly from the beginning, the research takes place, the products get developed, the tra- education to the end user happens, and then the contractor installs and commissions the thing properly. I think it starts with clearly speaking about what we're doing. And that's why, you know, to loop back to the beginning, and again, I love what they do, but I, I think Dark Sky is kind of gives you an idea of brooding badness in the future. Um, it's also, we want a clear sky full of stars. We want a moonlit nights. It, it, it's, not, it's not the correct place to start for this movement. And um, I like night preservation and darkness restoration personally. I think those are the two best terms you use. Natural sky preservation. I like that as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, that's the most correct way to look at it because that's what the sanctuaries um, describe, right? Mm. So, and and as much as I support the. Um, the quest um, and the activism and the, um, all the work that is done to create sanctuaries worldwide um, for, you know, Astrum, to support Astronomers' work, although, you know, a lot of astronomy is not uh, done with visible light, but, um, and then as a, you know, I think some people also say, well, it has a great uh, tourist um, economic uh, dimension. And mm-hmm. just uh, to, you know, uh, for those who want to see dark sky or natural skies, natural night skies, um, I think that's um, that's perfectly legitimate. Um, where I really question the mission, and I think you, you were talking about, you know, values, is when this quest is transposed into dense urban environments in a completely different uh, context. Um, Because, and to be a bit provocative, you know, I live in New York. Um, If I I could no longer see the moon, (laughs) I would be as upset as you are. Uh, for not being able to see the kind of sky that you have mm. behind you. Sure. Uh, but I'm perfectly happy with the moon. For me, it's a celestial object that I pay a lot of attention to, and I'm happy with our star. I look at the the sun with eclipse glasses on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in New York City, I don't expect natural forests or natural rivers. So the skies... Um, the sky glow that I see, for one, is 
you know, it's it's a two-way thing. It's not just the light uh, that is being reflected. It's also what is reflecting it. Um, and that's environmental pollution um, in a large part. And it's also meteorological uh, phenomena, like water droplets. Mm. Sure. So there is actually a natural phenomena that will, you know, um, prevent us from seeing natural skies. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's natural too. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think that to, you know, it's almost uh, a bit caricatural to expect natural skies. Again, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, what you have behind you to expect that in, in a dense urban environment for many reasons other than uh, lighting, because even without the sky glow, chances are that there's just too much particulates and environmental pollution um, to actually see through. So the uh, what Natalie's referring to is, if you're listening to this, is I'm I'm actually have a green screen behind me. So I, what I see is a, just a green screen here. But really, uh, Scott has overlaid onto the green screen a fake beautiful starry sky <laughs> so if you're listening to this that's what what natalie's referring to um when she says what's behind me uh just for the listeners out there which is okay, most so of the from now on i can say the fake sky behind the you. fake sky oh, it's kind of a yeah there's something about that that doesn't sit well when you describe it as yep. a green screen doesn't yep. it so and i think you know exactly what i mean by that the fake sky behind me um dense urban environments okay so this is where, from my perspective, and I want to talk about the satellites too, because I have a feeling you got something to say about those too. Okay. Um, the while I agree that we are nowhere near um, being able to ha see the stars in New York City or Toronto or Los Angeles, that's like that. That's not even conceptually something we can consider in 2024. Okay, um, and I agree with that, and because there's a, we need electric light. For a bunch of different reasons, but the the idea of restoring darkness—that's where that that term comes in. And when you're restoring something, you're doing it incrementally, and you're adopting the mindset. And that's where the preservation of night, the other side of it, comes in. In these areas where you can see the scars, the, the sanctuaries, as you call them, which is a, I, I like that I prefer that word than park. They're sanctuaries. It's the right word. Um, and where we're preserving night. And I think the lighting industry needs to embrace those two terms so that we make the right decisions in our densely urban environments where we need electric light for safety, for, for a bunch of different reasons. And in our sanctuaries, in our areas of wilderness and rural areas where we can have less, less light pollution very, and have the same end result. And so we restore darkness in our light-polluted, dense urban environments. We restore it incrementally, bit by bit, until we get better and better and better at this. And then we're preserving night where it exists. And I, and I think that that's why I like those two terms in the conversation rather than dark skies, Natalie. Do you agree with that? Okay, so I have a few comments on what you're saying because I've heard over and over in our industry um, and I'd like actually also to go back to uh, your audience uh, because you said earlier that your audience is the lighting industry and environmentalists. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's part of our problem is that we're preaching in our own 
perishes. <laughs> um, but there, there is, you know, there are some comments about uh, children, kids, young kids, uh, not being able to see uh, natural night skies, and mm -hmm. and they don't know what they're losing because they've never seen them. Mm -hmm. um, I assume that the kids that the you know that I talked about are not the kids who live in impoverished rural areas and who have no access to light because a lot of kids on Earth have plenty of natural skies above their mm -hmm. heads. Uh, because they have no, there's no electrification and there's no mm -hmm. light. So, you know, there's, it's without meaning to be, um, <laughs> I think there's a little bit of elitism in, in the, in the discourse. Yeah. It's a, it's a rich person's problem. I see. It's that. a rich problem, person's problem who has access to light. And actually let me jump into the satellites uh, mm -hmm. because it's a bit similar. So, um, do you use GPS, Michael? You know what? I, I would say that I'm a minimalist user of GPS, but yes. Okay. I uh, would say that. I would say I live in a world that can't function without GPS. Do you check GPS. the weather forecast? Yes, I do. Okay. And what? how how do you think you get those? Uh, through the internet? No, actually, you get those through satellites. Oh, satellites, yes. Okay. So... Again, it's a bit elitist to say, well, what we have for now is good, but we should not have more. I mean, some some internet access is provided by satellites. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, new satellites being launched to provide internet access to areas that uh, have no access to network. Um, it's... It's certain that the satellites that are being launched are not just, you know, they're not for humanitarian cause. It's a market. Yes, for sure. Uh, it's a market that is not ours. So I'm always a bit uh, uncomfortable when I hear, well, you know, what there is now is fine, but there's already a little too many satellites, so we should really stop putting satellites out there. Uh, because I think it's it's very limited to um, what we have right now, and you know, um, ignoring the fact that a lot of people don't have what we have. And right, but do it, they want what we have? Well, go and ask them. Same thing. That's go a, that's and ask exactly those what... kids. Go and ask those kids if. Uh, right. Um, I think I think both sides of the argument are somewhat elitist. I think both sides are. So what we're saying is that, um, and and. You know, um, please uh, indulge me because I want to. I, I agree with you mostly, but mm -hmm. I want to. I want to unpack this a little bit. So I think it's it, 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 while it's maybe not elitist for um, Starlink or you know Blue Origin or one of these companies to put satellites that people in remote southern nations can have internet access. I think it's um, that if they actually knew the consequences of the internet, not can you check the weather, do you have GPS, if they if they could see the full scope from the outside of what pervasive internet access has done to rich Western nations, would they want it? And is it being imposed upon them without their own culture deciding that's what they want? And um, is it 
other people looking to make money on them that are giving them this great, wonderful, perceived gift. And so while I agree with you that it's elitist for us to say every, we, we can't have any more light, we shouldn't have any more light, I think it's also sort of awkward for us to come in and tell other countries how they should develop, whether they should have pervasive internet access or control that access in some way. I think both sides of it are one group of people telling another group of people what to do. And I'm not really comfortable with either. Does that make sense? I'm not sure that the people in the global South want all this stuff that we're going to give them. You know what I'm saying? I think that's a, a the wrong starting place too. Um, I, I, I don't really agree with you. I suspect, I mean, I, I don't have the actual, you know, proof I can think of. Um, but I think that it's, uh, you know, the offer meets the demand. Uh, there's a reason why that, that particular market meets a demand. And it's always, uh, you know, there's always a individual choice about how much uh, internet exposure um, and what you do with internet. Um, you know, how much of that you want and, and yeah, what you can do with it. But I think it's to say that a lot of people would not want it. <laughs> I'm really not sure about that. Um, and I don't know if there is any studies that, you know, would support that hypothesis. Has there, I, I would say, I would say just show me where they were asked. And, and like, that's where I would, I would start, you know, I mean, there, there are different and, you know, do they, you know, is it, you know, at what point do we, does it, does this, um, expression of ideas and technologies, you're, they're all going one I mean, way. One, one of the things that I can think of is, you know, in developing countries what the paradox is, um, the infrastructure is skipping several steps. So in many ways, for instance, in our developed countries, our infrastructure will looks very obsolete. Actually, we have the hardest time sustaining, you know, 19th century infrastructure throughout our sure. uh, developed countries. In developing countries, the infrastructure is wired um, is sorry um, is wireless mm -hmm. and it's a completely different framework it's uh, they are more likely to have very efficient microgrids um, they you know when you look at the phone technologies that they have it's a completely different system um, I can think of one need for you know it's one demand one aspect of the demand is the whole um, cryptocurrency, which I don't know much about, but I do know that it's a, it's a currency that is developing um, among populations that do not have, you know, the, the, the banking structures that we have. So I think there's a lot of things that we don't know. So I would be a little, you know, careful to really advocate one way or another, but I'm to say that we are imposing, I think, is, um, you know, might be a stretch. Might be. I which think is it's... not to say, which is not to say that there's not some market interests, uh, of course. Um, you know, so, that's why. But what, I, what I would say is that I, I, my, my, um, my instinct on that is to say this, and I want to go back to the poor person living in New York City. 
or the poor person living in a rural area in Canada or one of these Western nations. I want to go back to them for a second. But when it comes to the, P- the global south and all these other countries, I don't think we really need to worry about them. I don't think that they are, I don't think they want our advice. They may want our technologies. They may not want our technologies. Maybe they want Chinese technologies, or maybe they want Indian technologies, or maybe they want to develop their own technologies. But within the nation-state framework, I think part of the problem is starting off from the perspective that we have something that we are obliged to either give them or not give them. I don't think that's the correct mind frame for the discussion. I think we have to... I don't think that's correct. But I want to take your point to the person living in Canada or the United States, where I have some measure of control over the... Thing. And so when it comes to this issue of light pollution, um, if you went back 20 or 25 years, you would have a significant amount of people that would say only rich people have electric lights at night. We need to bring light into our poorer neighborhoods. We need more light in our poorer neighborhoods. And this is going to bring safety to these neighborhoods. And so places like the south side of Chicago and all these other areas, they had these keyhole to keyhole strategies where they were lit up like prison yards because this is what, you know, people wanted. And now you see there's movements like Light Plus Justice um, and that that are saying that overlighting these areas is also a form of discrimination. And so the, the zeitgeist changed from where rich people are now have access to darkness and they're upgrading their fixtures to be cut off and be lower Kelvin temperatures and be tunable. And these neighborhoods are getting, are starting, you're starting to see them get this and you're starting to see the adoption across whole cities and towns. And then the poor areas aren't getting it and they still have the, the really high levels of lighting. And so now the whole dynamic has changed from darkness is what the rich people want. And the poor people have too much light and they're being lit up by prison yards. And this 5,000 K LED light is a form of discrimination. And I think both of those arguments can be true at the same time. Even do do you understand what I'm saying? They're both right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there is um, historical background in the sort of the deployment of urban lighting, for instance, uh, it did start in wealthier areas and then was expanded to um, other neighborhoods. Uh, I know that there was a movement in the 80s uh, where urban lighting was really advocated for as a feminist issue mm. uh, because women wanted to be safe. And I, I know, you know, the complexity of safety and light levels. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we need to. I think your audience is probably um, also... Well you know, versed on that topic, yeah. We've talked about uh, Well versed on that topic. So, yeah. uh, but it's not to say that no light is safe, and I think that's the the you know that's the danger of uh, I think pushing for that argument. Um, when you're talking, if you're making it a purely socioeconomic um, issue, I think you may also be missing the fact that it has a lot to do with knowledge and education. And the way I see what, you know, natural darkness advocates um, do is, I go back to the preaching in their own parishes because there's a lot of discourse, there are a lot of conversations, there's a lot of passion, but I'm not necessarily seeing impact 
at scale to improve because then I think we're switching from a natural darkness problem into a quality of lying problem. Mm. And that requires education, uh, that requires, I think, civil things. For the lighting industry, uh, it may require revised practices. Uh, maybe we need to reconsider our master planning um, issues. Um, I think we, and we need to, uh, to really educate uh, the, the, the public. Um, what we also need is, you know, our advocacy, I'm not sure it's very, sorry, I, I meant to say, we also resort to the reg regulatory framework, right? So a lot mm. of people are working on ordinances, regulations, policies at the international level, uh, at the national level, and then more local, regional, and local. Um, and I think that's, you know, very, that's actually what is also uh, supporting city ordinances and uh, dark sky um, sanctuaries and so forth and so on. What I'm really questioning is, is how much of an impact, how can we have, how can we bring better quality of light at scale in what seems to be a highly distributed problem um, because the cause of the problem is largely the application of end consumer products and commercial applications. Mm -hmm. So how can we, what systems, I think maybe we need to reframe how we approach this, what systems can we tap into uh, to educate, to advocate for, you know, better lighting uh, and to educate about it. And I mean, what I'm saying, for instance, is as opposed to a, a lecture in, you know, a lighting conference, maybe going to the CEO of some big chain hardware store, um, Home Depot we have in the States. I don't know how many stores they have in the US. But developing through that network, um, you know, an educational program for the end consumers who buy those products and, and who put them out. Uh, because as far as I can see in my environments, uh, I mean, I basically roam between three locations. None of the poorly applied uh, glary lights that create you know, and, and light trespass comes from professional lighting application. It comes from uh, people who don't know and who are putting, you know, all those lights there. So maybe there are, I mean, there are some national associations of real estate developers uh, and real estate owners. How, I, I'm trying to think of, if you understand what I mean, like what- I think, I think you've skipped a step. And um, skip two steps on the path, okay? And and uh, this is my suspicion, okay? And I, I was going to come out with this. What, what is this going to be, 98, Scott, or 99 Restoring Darkness podcast? Something like that. So I got the 100th episode coming up. And my point for the 100th episode was going to be that I don't believe that there's anyone in the world that knows how to properly illuminate the exterior environment at night 
I don't think it's within human knowledge yet. I don't think we have enough information um, about it. And the second thing is that um, I disagree with you. I don't think the lighting industry, I'll tell you this, for sure, lighting designers, lighting contractors, lighting distributors, lighting agents, and lighting manufacturers, most of the people that work at those places, I would say like 99% of them, do not consider this issue whatsoever whenever they're practicing. And I would say there's probably a handful of lighting designers in all of America that could, uh, you know, make an impact with light at night. And, but the vast majority of people that sell lighting, specify lighting, install lighting, design lighting, and everything else need the education, not the end users. And once we educate the practitioners of lighting, especially the frontline practitioners of lighting, electrical distributors, lighting distributors, contractors, then they will then advocate to their customers. But if we go to the customers first and say, hey, Home Depot, you know what, you should go with uh, these new light fixtures and they're dark sky friendly and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And they go to a lighting and designer, and lighting designer says, no, your lighting's fine. We need to get the industry on board, Natalie. And until the industry actually yes. embraces this. I, I, so I, I agree with you. Actually, I, I agree with you with the fact that we don't really know how to light uh you know, exterior spaces. I agree because I think, you know, just to give you an example, there is a lot of talk about, well, we need controls, we need to modulate lighting, but the truth is that may have unintended consequences on ecosystems that we are not sure. even aware of. Absolutely. So, and then when you look at the spectral distribution, well, you know, longer wavelengths is better for uh, fauna, but it's worse for flora yep. and so forth and so on. So it's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of contradictions. So we basically are in the pattern of less is better and more control is better. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I, you know, honestly, I do not know. I think it's, it would be worth doing a survey of the lighting, uh, design profession, uh, because I, at least the circles that I am in uh, it are definitely uh, circles where there's a lot of talk about darkness and there's a lot of, and as far as I'm concerned too, lighting designer, that's precisely what we do. We put light where it's needed. And so controlling it by that, I mean, optics and intensity uh, is pretty much our expertise. However, I do agree uh, that where the profession can and, and again, going to scale, how do we talk to um, the distribution, the supply chain? How do mm -hmm. we change the supply chain? That's not the uh, That's what I'm talking about. It's yeah. not the public we need to educate. It's well, the lighting industry. But also the public, both. Because I think a lot of people will put lights uh, without really knowing that they create glare, you know, and, and without really being aware of trespass. So I think more education is, is better. Uh, but yes. I, one doesn't negate the other. And I, I completely agree. We should, how do we put better products on the market? Um, I don't I think know it's that, about, you know, they I, I, need I, to have the, I think the there's an overfocus. Natalie, Natalie, I think there's an overfocus on products. Um, I think we, as an industry, we need to step back from products and look at people and, and companies. And we need to, instead of spending so much time and effort and money and resources certifying products, we need to spend more money educating and certifying people and companies. 
so that you know, for example, the Lighting and Darkness Foundation is creating an educational program called Darkness Specialist 1. And then we're going to do Darkness Specialist 2. And these are going to be industry certifications. So people can have these certifications. They can have credentials on their wall. They have to take courses to keep themselves current. And so that's, that's our first step here is to get the frontline lighting practitioners, distributors, um, which sell 90% of all outdoor lighting is sold through distribution. It's not designed. It's mm -hmm. sold through distribution. Right. Um, and so we get those people trained up. I agree with you um, on that. The education piece, but like this, what we're con concentrating here on the Lighting Darkness Foundation is the lighting industry. And I don't think, you know, when it comes to the public, I don't think it's about education. I think it's more about advocacy. It's more about letting them know about the issue. I don't think I think people are too busy to be educated. Natalie on they have so many problems the average Scott the producer um, the people walking down the street they don't care about the lights the lighting industry needs to care about that and we need to get it right and if we got it right it wouldn't happen at all it wouldn't be allowed because all the lighting people have decided that we're not going to do this horrible uh, <laughs> these horrible lighting projects anymore so I mean I think it's a lighting industry issue alone I think advocacy to the public but I don't think we should look for education to the public no I don't think so. I disagree. I think we that. should advocate for a larger knowledge about, you know, light. Um, yes. The, I mean, I personally consider that spectrum is no rocket science and uh, should be understood at a young age. Um, but, you know, the, the problem is go, going to the education of the public. I mean, there is, um, right now, what we are not, doing ourselves a service because I think there's a lot of misinformation and advocates of, you know, natural dark skies tend to oversimplify and over extrapolate um, what are findings from very narrow and focused studies uh, and very localized studies. And and I'm sure there is no, you know, that's not the intention, but I hear a lot of scare tactics and fear mongering. Uh, I'm horrified to hear so many times that light can give you cancer uh, if you have trespass in your bedroom. Uh, it's, I, I think we are just, you know, it's not what the research says. Um, and either we do not, those who say that does, do not understand the research, or they intentionally trying to scare people into uh, avoiding light, and I don't think that's the right uh, that's the right approach. So I think we should be way smarter about how we really uh, assess uh, our current knowledge. We should also research has everything to do with what we are talking about. We should, um, you know, collectively elaborate a pretty. Um, pretty serious research agenda. Um, I think understand the current findings and again, do not resort to unproven extrapolation from local to global. A lot of research, um, a lot of findings today, uh, for instance, point to the fact that they seem to be already evolutionary uh, behaviors. Um, and I think, you know, our healthy long lives seem to um, show that we've actually evolved pretty well um, in um, spending several hours a day in artificial lighting. Um, 
So we are ignoring, you know, adaptive evolutionary and adaptive natural behaviors. Uh, but some, a lot of studies show that they, they, those are already at work. Um, and, and then we also tend to extrapolate, you know, there's nothing like an absolute number if you don't put it um, in context. So when we use absolute numbers about bird death and, and, you know, insect loss, we're not looking at the impact on global populations. Uh, even though some studies do um, say that, you know, artificial lighting at night has no impact on at least some populations uh, of some species. So I, I, I just think that we need to be more objective. There seems to be a very biased way to look at the findings. Um, and I think it's just bad, you know, scientific practice to, uh, extrapolate and to guess, and there's plenty of you know it could be and might be and and um, and that's not science, that's not fact. But it is discussion and it is dialogue, and I think that you know what I would say is that I'm not a scientist, and um, I'd interview a lot of scientists, um, but we we have a, a couple of problems with scientists first they're highly highly focused which is why you you know you have a we'll have a talk about a certain kind of beetle or something like that um and i agree with you that if you if you go if you were to listen to the uh, restoring darkness podcast each individual one you might detect a note of hysteria in it about mm -hmm. like I, I like i agree with you on that there could be a note of that there although it it's i would say it's subdued um, and I would say in the past, just looking at the Restoring Darkness spot, there might be a touch of hysteria and there might be a little bit of religiosity in this as well, okay? That people are, you know, grabbing onto this like a religion or something or some sort of meaning of life is to be found in the darkness. And while I think there, it can be, I, you know, I think there is great experiences under natural skies. Um, yeah, I agree with you that there could be a little bit of that in the, in the, in the show. I agree. Um, but I no, would say, but not just in the show. To to your in your defense, Michael, it's uh, it's at conference. It's everywhere. Mm. Whomever is talking about dark sky, I mean, I attend those talks intentionally because I want to hear how data is presented. Mm. Uh, I'm not a scientist either, but I can read you know papers mm -hmm. and sure. I can put them together and I can analyze and synthesize. And so, you can also you can also be on a fact finding mission rather than an advocate for one particular side of a discussion. Which or is what I agree with that we've yeah. done. That you know what Foscarp has tried to do just to look at the problem is really to find facts to set things in context. Mm. Yeah, and but so he, yeah, I I I would say that be, if you go beyond the the darkness the the restoring darkness podcast, which is lighting people so the lighting and darkness foundation we're in the lighting industry we're not astronomers and so i i feel like we've done a better job of moving things to the middle whereas if you look at the traditional dark sky advocates they're mostly it's an astronomy movement it's a movement of astronomers that and astronomers you know, have historically been detractors of artificial light period yes, yes. from the very start yes and 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 I and I believe their perspective is valuable, and I think that it, you know that we should listen to them. 
But there's this antagonism between the dark sky movement and the lighting industry that I think we need to get away from. We need there's there's no and and you know dark sky has done a great job of recently with working with the IES, but traditionally that organization was kind of at odds with the lighting industry, and I don't think that's productive. Now, yes, they put out the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting and they've been moving and, and um, the executive director has moved Dark Sky closer to the lighting industry. Um, but yes, I agree with you that, the, that this idea that on one side we have darkness, spirituality and hope and environmentalism. And on the other side, we have pollution and uh, bad light and all this kind of thing. It's it's not it's not a Manichaean issue. It's not an either or. There has to be a balance finding perspective in between the two that is practical and and is looking to create the right lighting system for whatever environment it's in. And now I'm thinking, the only thing I would say is you said quality of light. I would say that we also have to add to that dialogue the quality of night and the quality of darkness as well to the, while we're creating, that's why we have the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. We need to become practitioners that create lighting systems and provide darkness. I, I think the lighting industry needs to add that to its, I don't know what the right word is, but yeah, it's- Yeah, but it's, I, I understand what you're saying and I, you know, granted, uh, to me it goes without saying. It's, it's, it's as though you talk about sound without talking about silence, right? So right. Yes. it's, it's uh, it, for me, quality of light includes, again, uh, uh, degrees of illumination and, um, you know, various distribution. But yeah, I do think that we need to, map the the problem space at a multi-level scale. I think it's a very complex problem. And, you know, very often people disagree because they're not th- talking about the same thing. Yes. Uh, they, I don't think that's where we are now. they don't understand one another. I think that's where we are now. Yes. We need to agree on defining the problem. Uh, and the problem is complex. It's multi-level. It's dynamic. And so we have to understand all those dimensions and we really have to define the problem in order to work on solutions. Um, I, you know, I'm not, you're, you're closer to the lighting industry from the distribution, you know, from the supply chain aspect, which is not, you know, one side that I'm that familiar with, or it's not where I operate. Um, so I can understand also the the your standpoint, and I I agree. I think that um, there needs to be some um, you know we need to revisit um, the 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 products that are on the market. But you do have um, market forces and sales, and increasing sales is one of them. So um, yeah, and I don't have the solution, but I mm. think that we need to think of. The problem. What would be the most desirable, and then how do we approach it in the most efficient way? Uh, and I, you know, you, yes, I think it's it was a good thing that the Dark Sky Association is working with the IES um, because it was really a meeting of the minds, right? They started mm. finding some agreement in city ordinances and and so forth and so on. Um, so I think alliances are desirable, but everybody needs to agree on the problem. Uh, I mean, in many ways, it's not different from politics, right? You have to mm. be democratic about uh, how we look at the problem in a way that reflects everybody's, um, uh, you know, partial understanding or partial interest. 
And I think that, you know, to close out, I can't believe we've almost, we've gone over time, Natalie, this quickly. Can you believe it? It's 47 minutes we've been recording. So, um, and we didn't but, even talk about birds and insects and I turtles. I know, I know. It's I know we could have. You know, I feel like whenever we speak, we often we're all we're 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 trying to understand each other, and that's why I think mm-hmm. it's it's so nice to talk to you. Um, what I would say is, like politics, though, this is an you know in a new issue, we need leadership, and um, and I think that that's what you're bringing to this show and and coming on and you know uh, you know saying hey what well, have you thought about this guys have you are you thinking about this um, and and you know the other people that have come on the show giving their perspectives but I think we're getting to the point where there needs to be some kind of industry symposium I think you're correct about that and I'm not sure that dark sky should lead that. I think the lighting industry should need, lead that symposium where we create this map and we listen to what Dark Sky has to say. They're, 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 they're rooted in astronomy. We get it. We listen to what you guys have to say, but the lighting industry carves out a new destiny for this, this industry, Natalie. And I think that'll be our final thoughts before we close out. So do you agree with me on that? Have, have we come to a, 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 an agreement on that? Yeah, I agree. And we should also bring environmentalists because, mm. you know, in that, uh, you know, data um, searching mission, uh, it's you will find that, you know, a lot of things is not as bad as we think they are. Mm. And we do need the expertise of people who look at evolution adaptation all the time to really understand uh, what their concerns are uh, and what their findings are, where we are. So I think to you know, find the right parties uh, to come to the table and, and have a discussion. But I agree with you. I think it should be led by um, by lighting experts mm. and scientists, probably. It's, lighting uh, scientists. Yes, I agree. And I couldn't agree more. Always, a, It's always a pleasure to have Natalie Roseau on the podcast. She was on Get a Grip. If you want to hear more from her, and I and Greg Eric as well talking, it's uh, episode 324. You go to getagripponlighting.com. And uh, if you want to learn more about her and some of, the, of her, the, her work on Foscope, you go to foscope.org and also lightreach.net. And then she's on social media. If you go to the restoringdarkness.com website, we'll have her social media posted there. Um, remember, folks, we're working on this. Lighting and Darkness Foundation. Um, why not become a monthly donor? We already have one. We might even have two. Greg told me we got another one, actually. Two monthly donors. And we've raised so far to help out the folks in Wasich with their battle. And a couple of things. I think we've raised over thirty dollars or $40,000 for this movement. That's right. And it starts with you folks out there. And we can get some momentum. And we can create these educational programs for all the distributors within the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. And then we're going to push those out to anyone else that wants them for free. That's what we're doing here. So you go to restoringdarkness.com. You click that donate link. Um, also, subscribe, support, put comments, and share these podcasts around. And my special thanks goes to Natalie Rizzo for coming on the show and for engaging in and helping us understand what the words we need to use are. And my favorite, favorite, favorite line from the show was sound without silence. I think that's going to be the name of the show. Thank you, Natalie, for being a guest. <laughs>